Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. Recording this in the time of quarantine or self-quarantine, in the time of um, our nation and the world, really, dealing with COVID-19 and social distancing and all the stuff that comes along with that. And and in that, we're also dealing with uh, politics. We have to. There are decisions being made, leadership or lack of leadership, depending on your perspective, happening all over the place. And a lot of our conversations have always been political, whether we've let them be that way or not. And today, our conversation is somewhat about politics. It's somewhat about legislations and laws, but it's also about people. And there's something that happens when the political becomes personal. My guest today, Gina Thomas, had an experience that she writes about in her book, Separated by the Border. And it's her story of interacting with a young girl named Julia and her mother who were separated. And the foster care that Gina and her husband were able to give and the way it changed their lives and also the illumination it brings to our policies as the United States, our policies as a country, but also what happens to the human soul when we interact with suffering and desperation, when people do whatever they have to do in order to provide for those who are innocent and vulnerable. And so today's conversation is difficult. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, but it's also very, very good and very holy. Not wholly in the fact that the two people talking are saints, although, you know, technically we are in the words of the scriptures, we're all saints. But it's holy in the sense of this is a ground from which we begin to see what God is up to. And so I pray you enjoy this. I pray you're being safe. I pray you're washing your hands and not touching your face and keeping social distance. And so let this episode be something that lifts your soul up in a season that is a little crazy. So here we go in conversation with author Gina Thomas. Gina, we uh, were talking on a day when um, the world has kind of changed in the last 24 hours, I feel like. Yes. Um, we're all talking about viruses and uh, more interested in hand washing and antibacterial stuff than ever and toilet paper, apparently. Yes. <laughs> I've never had as many conversations about toilet paper as I have in the last 24 hours. <laughs> That's a very good point. I don't think I have either. So thank you for being on the podcast, you know, on the verge of the thing, whatever the thing might be. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I always begin with the same question and I'm, I'm really anxious to hear where you go with this. Um, if you were to do, if you were to define the word wisdom, which is what we're all about on, on the podcast is, is figuring that out and gathering it. Uh, if you're going to define that word, where would that start for you? Where would your beginning point be? Yeah, I think, um, you know, depending on what phase of life I'm in, I might have a different definition for what wisdom is. Um, but right now it feels like uh, wisdom is understanding the context of where my knowledge comes from and understanding that there are contexts that it doesn't come from. And so really understanding um, not just knowledge, but everything that surrounds it. Um, and, you know, it, it feels like over the last 
I don't know, five years or so, um, jumping into just justice work and, um, and writing and being more, you know, aware of what I'm writing and, um, who I'm writing about and writing with and, um, just really trying to understand what are my unconscious biases and, um, and what are the myths that I have believed, um, for the majority of my life. And so for those who are, you know, going through deconstruction in their faith, um, I think that's, it's a really good place. It was a really good place for me to question some of those things and try to understand, you know, I see that this is, this is my knowledge tree, but where did that root come from? Um, and why is it there? And is it one that's actually producing fruit or is it, you know, producing some pretty rotten things? And so that's what I think wisdom is right now. So with knowledge and context, that requires you to dig into your past and begin to ferret through some of the stories that you have. Is there one that seems significant to you right now? Like what, one that really exemplifies what you, I love that knowledge and context. That's, that's beautiful. Can you, can you talk about where the context is for you? Like, is there a story from your, from your growing up or your early faith years that really exemplifies that? Yeah, I think one that I think about a lot, um, I mentioned this a little bit in my book, um, that my, um, my family is Italian, my, my mom's side of the family. And, um, and so I grew up around a lot of Italian relatives. Um, and my great aunt, who is a Catholic nun, um, had her and I and her twin brother, who was a Catholic priest, um, he's since died, but we had a lot of conversations about faith growing up. Um, and, uh, it was very interesting because, you know, I grew up in evangelical world and of course they didn't and neither did the rest of the extended family. Um, and so we had a lot of differences on certain things. Like if I believe that the Bible is literal or not. Um, I remember first having that conversation with my great aunt and, um, you know, initially I would say that, my evangelical culture taught me that she was not a Christian. Um, but her faith and her embodiment of her faith and her continued embodiment, um, really just pushed against that narrative a lot. And it was hard to, um, hard to believe in that knowledge. Um, when I knew that there was another knowledge, (laughs) um, from a different context that was saying something opposite. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that's a, Hope that makes sense to others as much as it does in my head. Oh, I definitely think so because there is that battle between ideas. It's not a battle so much, but it's it's something that we have to hold in tension. The here's the idea, and here's somebody living out something different. Right. And and I've always said that like the real stuff of life resonates with you. Mm. Like even if you would sit back and go, I have no idea what they believe or why they believe it. Right. But something about the way that person lives like it hits something in me. It strikes something in me that says that's, that's legit. Yes. You should pay attention to that. That's right. Such a divine kind of moment. Um, Yeah. And I could see where that's a foundational piece to the story you get to tell in separated by the border uh, because your book, your book push, which by the way, I read in like 11 hours. I just, Oh wow. And read through the whole thing because I was, I don't know if this makes sense, but I was just captivated by the things in it that were breaking my heart. Hmm. 
And I just felt like I was continued, like this invitation just said, keep going into this, Hmm. keep going into this, keep going into this. Hmm. But this whole idea of knowledge and context makes sense. The the embodied piece that you're talking about with, uh, with your family. But the story really started, really starts in the area of foster care. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, how did you begin the journey with everything that's packed into the past? How did you begin this journey of being a foster parent? Where did that start for you and your husband? Yeah, it's um, also going back to my family. So um, my mom was um, what we would currently today call a kinship uh, adoption. Um, her mother died when she was two um, in giving birth, and um, she ended up living with her dad still, but her dad moved in with his brother. And so she lived with her great, her, her aunt and uncle and her dad. Um, and then there was a couple of times throughout different seasons of life where it was just, um, the aunt and uncle that she lived with. And so she grew up calling her cousins, her brothers and sisters. Um, and I think really it was, uh, in her because when, as we were growing up, um, I don't have any, I only have biological brothers and sisters, but my mom often talked about adoption, um, and foster care. And, um, I really think that it was a seed that she planted, um, in us of just knowing that, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, people who have very different backgrounds and can't grow up in nuclear family like we did, like we got to. Um, and so that really made me, as I started traveling, uh, as a teenager, I started traveling to different places around the world. And some of those travels were specific to orphanages. Um, some were specific to ministries with children and just started really, um, having a desire to adopt one day. Um, and that desire was so very strong that when my husband and I were dating and got together, (laughs) I basically sat him down and was like, if this is not an option for you, we're done. Um, and, uh, (laughs) he handled it quite well. Um, uh, but what that turned into was we were missionaries in Mexico for four and a half years, um, and attempted to adopt while we were there, but that didn't happen. Um, for a number of different reasons, and I'm actually quite glad it didn't, um, but you have to read the book to know why. <laughs> um, but uh, then it turned into really focusing on, um, you know, our own country and where we're from and our own context and um, understanding who are the vulnerable children that live right around the corner from where we live. Um, and so that's really how we got involved in foster care. Can you identify a way that that's formed and shaped you? that the, because there's a, I always have friends of mine who are, who are foster parents and they have this quality of character and this way of seeing the world that's unique. Have have you noticed that in yourself and your husband, how you all see everyday things or, or the idea of family? How has that, how has this shaped you, this journey of being a foster parent? Yeah, I think, um, I think in a lot of ways, it shaped us in a lot of ways. I think, you know, going back to that idea of wisdom, um, when you're face to face with someone whose set of knowledge is just completely different from the context that you've grown up with or known or understood, um, it really makes you face a lot of those questions of why do I believe this? And um, where does this belief come from? And is there a way to, uh, 
maybe tweak this belief a little bit so that it includes this person who seems to be excluded by this belief. Um, and, you know, when we talk about, you know, faith and God and family, and we talk about um, all of us being in the family of God, uh, I think foster care really does an amazing job of exemplifying what that looks like um, on earth. And it's complicated, you know, because um, in some situations, foster care is completely unjust and um, the children should not be with foster parents and should be with their biological parents. Um, and in other cases, it feels so very difficult because you want them to be with their biological parents and the biological parents want them to be with them. Um, but because of the context of how they've grown up and what they've lived through and the situations that they find themselves in and the lack of support systems that they have, um, that's not possible. And so it's, it's just this whole reframing of what it means um, to be loved and to be family and uh, to have faith that God can make all things right in the end. Mm. I think about when I was reading your book, I was thinking about a quote from the poet Rilke who talks about that we live our life in ever widening circles. Mm. And the foster, the thing that drove you to want to be a foster parent, to want to adopt and want to move in those circles. What I noticed in the book is how quickly that circle widened. And specifically when it comes to the story that's the center of the book, which is Julia and Lupe, can you, can you help people walk into that? Because it's, you have, you know, you talk about, oh, I'm a foster parent. This story is not the typical foster parent story, uh, which is why it's so helpful and enlightening. Can you walk people into how you came to be a part of this widening circle of Julia and Lupe's life? Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's so true. This book is, it was a little bit confusing in trying to explain what the book is about because people are like, is it about immigration? Yes. Is it about foster care? Yes. It's about all these things. Um, and what you're hitting at is just that, you know, you get into foster care, um, for certain reasons and certain, um, ideas of what you have will happen in foster care. And then, Um, something like this happens and it just, like you said, it just opens your mind up to a whole nother realm of, um, of life and of injustice and new contexts, um, all of that. And so what happened with us is that we were fostering for about three or four months, I think at this point in time. Um, and we had moved back from Mexico. So our family knew Spanish, um, and our social workers knew that we knew Spanish And, um, one day they called us up and asked us if we could take in a little girl who only spoke Spanish. And the reason that they called us was because they knew we spoke Spanish. Um, and in the County there, there was not other, um, two parent homes that where both parents spoke Spanish. So, um, so we said yes, thinking it was just going to be a weekend and it turned into four months of working to get her reunited with, um, with her mom. Um, and really in the process, just uh, opening our eyes up to all kinds of stuff that's been, ha- that had been happening, um, specifically the zero tolerance policy and the separation of children with their, their families immediately at the border. Um, and then really trying to understand even more. Um, I had lived in Honduras previously. And so um, understanding that context even more and kind of reminding, you know, and like researching things that I had forgotten, um, about the country. Um, 
and then, you know, just, just connecting with, uh, with Lupe, with Julia's mom and hearing her story and, um, just being, uh, again, a more and more aware of the different issues and concerns and injustices that happen to migrants who are trying to come to the United States. Um, and then, like I said, we had lived in Mexico. And so I had heard of, um, of, you know, rough treatment by, by Mexicans towards Central Americans, um, because they are, are vulnerable in that, in it, when they're trying to migrate. Um, and then, you know, have this story kind of laid out in front of me that, that proves some of that. Um, but then also knowing Mexico as a beautiful country with beautiful people who would never harm others like this. And so just kind of being more and more aware of, you know, there is no, anytime we say, oh, all Mexicans are this way or all Central Americans are this way, um, you know, I immediately know that's not true, just being a writer. Um, but the untruth of that becomes so much deeper when you actually know people um, and their stories and, you know, your heart is connected to their hearts. And so um, the story really opened up just a whole bunch of stuff for us to, to learn and to understand and so much for us to just never understand. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it comes back to your wisdom as knowledge and context. Your knowledge changed when Julia became part of your life because you had a new context. And That's right. To imagine racism not as just black versus white, mm-hmm. uh, but Mexican and Central American, like mm-hmm. the tension there. Yeah. Uh, it, the broadening of that context, that widening circle um, is unbelievable. And and Lupe, you came to find out at some point that Julia was probably one of the children who was separated from her from her parent at the border. Mm-hmm. So the title of the book kind of comes. I love how you you did. I don't know if you came up with the title or not. This is always a fun <laughs> the dialogue between publishers and writers on who really <laughs> did this, but separated by the border rather than yeah. separated at the border. Um, yeah. One is the news line we hear. The other yeah. one, I think, is the reality. Yeah. If you, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And actually I can't take any credit for it whatsoever. Um, <laughs> this is all the publisher, but when I asked them specifically about, you know, the difference between at and by, and they told me that I was like, yep, that makes total sense. And it's absolutely perfect for this story. Cause it's very true. Yeah. So when you tell, when you tell people Julia's story, what is it that you feel like most people miss? Inside, because you have a young girl, you have a vulnerable person. Most of us have our, you know, hallmark part of our hearts that gets turned by that anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what, do, what is the thing that you invite them to understand about Julia? And then I would love to hear you say the same for Lupe. What, what mm-hmm. people often miss about these, the parents who are trying to do something to save their kids. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Um, let's see for Julia, I would say that, and and I think this kind of goes to all of foster care is that, um, you know, it, when a child comes into a foster parent's home, um, initially the response is one of immediate compassion and it's just, 
oh, I'm so sorry, that poor deer, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then once you say something that's like humanizing of the child, they're no longer an angel. They're actually a kid who <laughs> gets on your nerves and gets in trouble and is annoying, just like every single kid ever. Um, it turns into, oh my gosh, I can't believe she would do that. How could she do that? Um, why would she try and run away from your home? You know, all this stuff. And it's just like, she's a kid like this. There is no, um, there is no perfect child and, and we shouldn't expect there to be. And I think specifically in foster care, I feel like kids in care get a lot of that, um, in ways that I wish they really wouldn't because, they have been products of their environments, just as everyone is, and uh, which means in certain times they might hit or throw something or do something that you think is just awful. And that's okay because they're humans. <laughs> and that was allowed or whatever, or, you know, exemplified, or um, it's just a way for them to deal with the anger of changing, complete, completely changing their contexts. Um, and so I just, yeah, I guess I wish that people had more, um, maybe long, um, long suffering of their compassion for, for children in care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I would say for, um, for, well, I'll, I'll say one more thing about Julia. I think, um, it's challenging for people to, you know, during the four months of her being in our home, uh, there was, I think it was like month three, maybe month two, where she started to, I, I imagine she started to lose hope that she would move home with her family. And so she started saying stuff like, I don't want to speak in Spanish and I don't want to eat avocados and tortillas anymore. Um, I want peanut butter and jelly. Um, and so I think it's easy, um, for people to think, well, um, you know, that was just, that was just a natural thing for her to do. She should, you know, that should be part of the process. And, and really, um, for Andrew and I, it was, it was a little bit scary because we knew that that was a trigger of maybe this is not actually going to happen. Maybe I'm never going to get to go home. Um, maybe you need to be my family from now on. And so that like moment of kind of like losing hope and what, what that turns into is assimilation. And so I'm very, that word has been, um, very much a part of, of my thoughts and my, um, prayers and patterns lately of really trying to understand, like, what does it mean to, um, to recognize the beauty of other cultures, um, whether they're in your home or not, um, maybe they're in your church and not require them to assimilate because I think assimilation, um, you know, in a lot of times is part of, uh, our, our white evangelical culture is we require people to assimilate without even realizing that we are. Um, but some of like actually allowing that to happen is, is a loss of hope um, in a way that I think is really um, dishonoring to God and the diversity that he's given all of us. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then um, for, and then for Lupe, yeah. One of the things that's striking about her story is she has experienced all the things that have been all the things that were on the periphery that people say, well, sometimes this happens. And it seems like she went through all of them. And yeah. so talk a little bit about what, what do you, what do you think people need to know about this mom 
who went through this particular trial trying to do something to save her child. Yeah. Um, you're right. She did. She went through, she went through so much. Um, and I, I guess one of the biggest things that I hope comes from the book is just to recon, recognize, um, for people to recognize that uh, Lupe is human and um, her story is one of humanity. And um, uh, she underwent just a ton um, of trauma and abuse. Um, and in many ways, that's not uncommon um, for women in her situation. And really, she knew some of the some of the risks that she was taking. I don't think she knew the extent, um, obviously, to which they would would come out, but she did know that there were risks. And um, clearly, uh, the economic situation is so dire that those risks are, um, it's determined that it's worth the risk. Um, and, and in her particular situation, it was a, um, desire to continue to be a family. And I think that's what Christians specifically miss. Um, we're very much pro-family um, and pro-life. And But whenever we take those out of the context of what we think they are, we can't seem to understand that that same um, value is still on those things. And so we say we're pro-family. Um, and what, what we mean by that is, you know, a, a host of different things in our American context, in our evangelical American context. But in Lupe's situation, being pro-family was trying really hard to get the medicine for her grandfather that she took care of like her father, basically, her whole life. And so bring, being pro-family for her was trying to get a job that could help that family stay together as long as possible. Um, and being pro-life, you know, in her situation is, is being able to cross the border because it feels like a death sentence to stay when you don't have the economic means and you can't figure out a way to get those means. Um, and so I think that I, I wish that we were able to adapt, you know, our theology to different contexts a lot quicker um, as white evangelicals. Yeah, that preserving a family in a in a faithful way, in a way that sees yeah. God in everything, could mean trying to do things to get your child yeah. to to get across the border. And yep. and we often talk pro family for Americans, and we say, you know, we would do anything for our family. And then yep. we look at a family trying to cross the border and go, well, you have to do that legally. Yep. Well, that's a that's an awfully privileged position to speak from. And we just don't see it. I mean, you, you can't yeah. forsake it. It's just you, you have to be able to see that. Um, yep. And that legal side is often, I think, what trips us up is you're, you see the legalities of it rather than seeing the people involved. That's right. Uh, I just keep thinking Jesus asked us to love our neighbor, not our laws. And mm. I feel like that's important. That's good. I feel like that would shape us a bit. Um, that's good, Casey. Wow. So when you, when you write a book, and I, I know this from writing myself, you, you put a part of yourself into this and you put yourself on display. Mm -hmm. um, you put a part of Lupe there. You put a part of Julia there. Um, and people respond to it. 
when you were putting this together, the journey of writing a book is, is a challenging one in any situation. Mm-hmm. But in this, you had the added side of saying, there are going to be people who read this and are vehemently against it. Uh, how did you manage that tension of knowing you were going to get the emails and the tweets and the <laughs> political pundits of, well, if they really wanted that, they would, like we talked about, come across legally or, or whatever. Yeah. How did you, what was the fortitude that you had to muster, the faith fortitude you had to muster in order to bring this into, into the world? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that when I first uh, asked Lupe if it was okay if I wrote this book, her response was, yes, absolutely. Um, I want to, I want this story to get out there so that other people in my situation can be better informed in the decisions that they have to make. Um, and, you know, for me, I think I wanted to inform um, specifically my context of people, white evangelicals, um, just how difficult that decision is to make and just how um, exactly what the risks are. Because I think it's easy for us to sit back in our, you know, comfortable homes and um, with our comfortable bank accounts and say, um, do this legally, right? Or um, you have a decision to make and that decision was not glorifying to God because you didn't do it by the laws of the land. Um, but there's not really any meat behind what we're saying and any understanding of, of what that actually means for people. And, you know, like, we, like we've been talking about, my own understanding was very minimal until walking through this. And um, I think that knowing um, that that lack of knowledge has been there for so long, or at least it seems to be dominated. Um, I, I, I do know a lot of people who in, in the Christian church who understand the actual context of this. Um, but it seems like the dominant narrative is one of go do that legally. Um, and so knowing that that is what's on the line, right? I mean, obviously I tell about stuff that I don't necessarily like, I wouldn't normally tell people. Um, uh, there are some like, big confessions in the book that sometimes I'm like, why did I say that? <laughs> Someone should have stopped me. Why yes. did they let me say this? <laughs> yeah, there was this one moment where I was talking to Andrew about stuff and everything had already been turned in. And I sat down on the bed and I was like, oh no, Andrew, I just told him, like, I just said this, 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 and this. And like, I am going to get it from every side. <laughs> I was like, why did I do this? <laughs> that like real vulnerability uh, hangover thing. But, um, you know, I think ultimately in my own life, um, authenticity is one of the most uh, important values that I uphold. And I really do believe that, um, that it's something that God's not afraid of. Um, and I, I think that that's really what, what kind of holds it all together in the midst of, you know, honestly, I get it from both sides. I get people saying that I should never be telling Lupe's story and that I don't have um, the right to do that. And other people saying that, you know, like we've been talking about that, that this is maybe, maybe they'll say something like this is a, a one-time situation. This is not normal. It's not what normally happens. And we don't need to base our theology on one person's story. Um, but I think uh, my hope is that it's the people in the middle who 
see this story and who can read the depths of which not only is the story itself, but also the depths with which it's touched me and my faith and, um, and, and the nerves that I now have to work towards specific justice within this context. Um, my hope is that it will influence people in that way to really see God in a much bigger way and to understand um, that his love is so much bigger than, than all of this, than borders and, and laws and um, rules that we have decided that we have to live by and beliefs that are within contexts that are not necessarily the, the full story. So that's so good. Is there, is there a gift, uh, an impact, an effect that this book had on you that you were surprised by? Something that came out of the process of writing where you just thought, oh, I didn't see that coming. Well, you know, the whole, the whole book um, uh, kind of hinges on this new enlightenment within my faith of seeing the mother love of God. And I really didn't see that coming um, prior to actually writing. I mean, I knew, like I have always been impressed by Lupe and her love um, for her daughter um, and really her love for her family um, from the beginning. But to kind of go deep into this aspect of the love of God as the love of a migrant mother um, was, I didn't see that coming. Talk a little bit more about that. The mother love of God. What did that, how did that come through for you? Yeah. um, So initially one of the first conversations that I had with Lupe, she had told me that she said, if I came, if I came to the border again right now, would they give me um, Julia back? And, um, this was after she had just escaped. I didn't know any of the story, any of the background story. She had just escaped, um, from the smugglers. She had just returned to Honduras. I think she'd been in Honduras maybe two weeks at the time. And, um, and she was telling me that she would come back again if it meant that she could get her daughter. And, um, once I found out the whole story of what happened, um, in her journey, I just was undone. Like, I cannot believe that you would do this again and say, it's totally worth it to get my daughter back and to suffer the abuse and uh, the trauma all over again. And when I think about that, I think about what greater love can anyone have? Um, and that is, that is the love of God. And I don't know, and, and this is a scary thing. I don't know if I could say that myself about my own life and my own daughter, if I had to suffer the things that she suffered. And that kind of love is absolutely tenacious and beyond, um, in a lot of ways, beyond my comprehension. Hmm. And that's the love of God. That's so powerful. I, um, I'm so grateful you wrote this and I know it came at great emotional expense and, um, it came, you know, through a story where you and your husband suffered and had to struggle with a lot. Uh, but I was in Honduras in 2007 in Tegucigalpa Mm. and 
this beautiful place, beautiful country, beautiful people, but definitely everyone seems to be carrying a very large weight. And I think there's such a redemptive force that your book has for an entire group of people uh, because it puts that on the map and it, it brings this to people's attention, people of faith uh, to their attention. And for the sake of even just making this country and the mothers who live there a matter of prayer, mm. seeking God on their behalf. So, so thank you for putting yourself out there and bringing this to light and um, the gifts that it's going to give are already being felt. I mean, the book's been out for a while, so I'm sure you're getting those stories too of thank you, thank you, thank you. But from me, um, thank you for what this has done and how this is going to shape anybody who reads it. I really appreciate that and you for doing what you've done. Thanks so much, Casey. That means a lot. She holds a master's degree in international development and is the author of A Smoldering Wick, Igniting Missions Work with Sustainable Practices. She lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And if you're wondering, um, the emotion in her voice at the end was very, very real. This is something that Gina lives with and lives in a very deep way. And that's just it. All of us, uh, our various experiences, we carry the beauty, and there's always inside of that beauty uh, some kind of pain. And so, as you listen to this, I wonder, is God prompting you to examine experiences you've had where you've experienced beauty inside of pain, where you've seen people make immense sacrifices and wondered, would I be willing to do the same? Have I done the same? And if I have, what did that do in me? If you're listening to this on uh, Spotify or iTunes, thank you. If you haven't subscribed, please do that. If you're streaming via my website, thank you for doing that. Uh, Any ratings, reviews, or comments that you make are very helpful. If you want to reach out to me with some questions, maybe you want to get in touch with Gina, you can do that through my website as well. Um, This has been a fantastic conversation, and I pray you enjoyed it as much as I did. And so as you go into this week... I pray that God might prompt you to see some of the beauty in the suffering and challenge you to take steps towards caring for the vulnerable, maybe in a way that you never have before. Be well, friends. Live wisely. Peace. Peace.